The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. In John 10.10, Jesus Christ declared, I have come that you would have life and have it to its fullest measure. And this promise is set against a dramatic contrast. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. The full life that Jesus speaks of here and that he promises includes worship and fellowship and the pursuit of good works, enjoying God's creation, and self-sacrifice, persecution, expending one's self for others. Consider the entranceway into this way of life. Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone comes after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Paul restates in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but I am fully alive because Christ lives in me. How can this be? We are not a part of this world system. Brothers and sisters, we are a part of God's inaugurated kingdom now, one where Christ is Lord and He rules and He runs things in different ways than we are used to living and operating in this world system. Today, we're going to consider part of what this abundant and full life is all about. Today, God will teach us about the heart of giving in His economy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, Paul encourages the church, and he says this, that you have matured in many ways since his previous letter of correction and rebuke and counsel. And he says this in verse 7, But as you excel in everything, in faith and in speech and in knowledge and earnest and your love for one another, see that you also excel in this grace also. That act of grace is the act of giving. BBC, in our pursuit of the glory of God and to be like His Son, may we too excel in this grace. Amen. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. As you turn there, you may already be there. I want to, to speak briefly about what an economy is. An economy describes a system of relationships between production, distribution, and the management of scarce resources. When we consider the giving of our limited resources that God has given to us, we are often tempted to think of the world's economic system. But God is the one who is Lord over His economy, and He's not confined to the boundaries and the limitations that we knew outside of Christ. Today, we will be challenged. Today, we will be freed to live in God's economy. And what does giving look like with a redeemed heart in God's economy? It looks like the full life. It is the full life. It includes and it values and it thrives in self-sacrifice. That is not a detriment. It is a joy. It is what we have been saved to live on. And our heart's affections are changing as we grow more and more in Christ. You know, sometimes we may look at giving the way that Jesus looked 
or Peter looked at Jesus when he said he was going to the cross. May it never be, Lord! But death was the path to life, wasn't it? The grave leads to resurrection and generosity leads to gain. Here's the central point. If you're writing notes today, this is it. If you have to go, this is the point of the sermon, right here. The heart of giving is cheerful, proportional, sacrificial grace that God supplies, multiplies, and transforms into all blessing that will never fail. God will always give you the ability and the capacity to cheerfully give. Always. This, brothers and sisters, is not the life of death and theft and destruction. It is the eternal and abundant life. Why? Why would we resist it? Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray that the words that we hear today would be your words, that they would encourage us, that they would convict us, that they would make us more into the likeness of your Son, God, and that we would rejoice because of how you enable, how you empower, how you refine. God, we praise you and look to you now as the great giver. There is nothing that you have held back. You have given even of your own Son that we may live. Help us to see what you command us to, but more importantly, to have the heart that you have for generosity, for giving, and for the abundant life that you call us to in Christ Jesus. It is in his holy name that we pray. Amen. Let us turn our eyes first to the universal illustration of giving in God's economy. Look at, with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. All right, let's stop there. Three words, right? We've got to deal with that. Maybe it's four. This doesn't sound like the start of a new idea, doesn't it? It sounds like we are jumping into some sort of conversation that Paul is having, and that would be exactly right. Paul is coming to a conclusion of a teaching, of a discourse that he's having with the Corinthian church. It began all the way back in chapter 8 and has gone through chapter 9, verse 5. He tells of the work of the churches in Macedonia. He's giving an update to this church to help them understand all that they are meant to understand in giving. This is the longest discourse that the Bible has in our understanding of what the generous life looks like financially. We know that God calls us to give of our time and of our skills and also of the financial resources that he's given to us. And this passage is the longest discourse on that. But it doesn't begin in chapter 8. This conversation actually begins about a year prior in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you want to turn a couple pages over, we can understand where this conversation began and now the summary conclusion that we are going to reach in the passage that we look at today. At the end of this letter of correction and rebuke and counsel that Paul has offered to the Corinthians, he calls them to this unified goal, this unified ministry of providing for poor saints who are in Jerusalem. In verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you should put aside something and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. A year prior, Paul encouraged the Corinthians to gather and to begin gathering weekly 
a gift that would accumulate over an entire year, that he would take with gifts from Macedonia, which included churches of, uh, of the Galatians, and he was going to take to serve a massive need. Think about that. Collection over the course of a year to meet the need of the saints in Jerusalem. In chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, we see Paul pick back up on this as he's preparing to come and visit them. He's coming to them in person. That is what the purpose of this second letter is. And he says, I want you to be ready. I want you to be fully encouraged. I want your heart motivations to still be true. And because Paul understands that giving can be a volatile subject, he gives a conclusing vision to describe what the heart of giving is all about. What is the giving that God desires? And how is he a help and an encouragement to us toward that end? And that is what I hope that we walk away with today, which is an understanding of the heart of giving that God desires and how he helps us in it. And so, with this context in mind, let us look again at the universal illustration of giving in God's economy. Look at verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. What is the giver of to God to understand? First, giving is not a transaction. Giving is not a tax. Giving is not losing. Giving is multiplication. It is productive, expansive gain for the giver, the receiver, and the glory of God. We cannot think that we are merely exchanging a dollar for a cup of coffee. There is far more that is going on. The universal nature of this agricultural principle is easy to grasp. If you put a little seed in the ground, you're going to get a little harvest. You put a great amount of seed in the ground, and great will be your harvest. But you may say to yourself, well, <laughs> money is not seed. Money doesn't grow on trees, and it doesn't sprout anything if you put it in the dirt either. So how is it that giving can lead to gain? Well, I'll ask you another question. How can death lead to life? We are in a different system. God does different things. We can give away, and God can replenish, particularly in means and ways that we cannot see and understand now, but will understand as we step out in what? In faith. That is how our God works. We may think that there needs to be extensive exegesis to understand what is going on here, but this is an illustration that children can understand. You put a little bit in, and you get a little out. What is the heart of your generosity? What is the heart of your generosity? It is worth noting one nuance in the Greek here, where it says, those who sow bountifully reap bountifully. In the Greek, it might be better rendered as those who sow with blessing reap with blessing. The point for us to understand is that when there is good intention mixed with faith in God for the blessing of others, the harvest will be returned with blessing and with abundance. And that is what our God does. Let us turn in verse 7 to the heart principle of giving. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giving. God loves a cheerful giver. What is the center of giving, brothers and sisters? It is not a percentage. It is not a number. It is an action and a heart posture. 
First, we must understand that giving is part and parcel with the Christian life. It is essential to the Christian life. It is one of the grateful responses to salvation. Giving is commanded. When we think about it, the first number that we should be thinking about, avoiding, is the number zero. The number zero. As we look here at this text, it says each one must do. We are called and commanded to give. Mentioned earlier in chapter 8, verse 7, Paul tells the Corinthians to excel in this grace even more. In 1 Corinthians 16.1, we already heard this, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church in Galatia, so you are also to do. Proverbs 3 commands us to honor the Lord with our wealth. These are, this is not an optional exercise. It is as expected as our worship, our prayer, our evangelism, our enjoyment of God, all the things that he's called us to in this abundant life, that is what we are to do. So we start and we begin with asking whether or not we have a heart to give to God. After he transitions from this phrase, each one must do, and sets the expectation to give, Paul immediately draws back, and this is key. Paul sets the standard to be a giver, but he immediately draws back from any defined number or percent or heavy-handed standard and gives three essential modifiers to guide us in our giving. One, as he has decided in his heart with thoughtfulness and intentionality. Two, not grudgingly. And three, or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. So let's examine this first motivation, this first guidance that God gives us to give to him. And first, the giver is one who thoughtfully decides. Giving is not an emotional response. It is not a subjective whim. It is not something that we would do at the end of a good tax return day or something we would do on a bad day in the stock market. Those are not the times to thoughtfully consider what it is that I'm going to give to the Lord. The term heart here is important because this is the seat of the center of the man's life. This is where our emotions, our faith, the wisdom of God find their intersection. Thoughtful giving is a wise consideration of all of the responsibilities that God has given to us to manage our home, to provide for our families, to eat. It is not mandated by a percentage principle. Rather, your decisions are to be proportional, sacrificial, and a responsive love to what Christ has done. If you're looking for guidance in how do I thoughtfully consider how I ought to give to the Lord, consider proportionate, sacrificial giving that is in response to what Christ has done for you. First look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, to understand the proportional nature. Paul describes the churches in Macedonia, and he says, what about them? That they gave according to their means. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 16, 1, that as you have prospered, as you have earned, give. And then in chapter 8, verse 12, he says, the financial gift is acceptable according to what a person has and not according to what he does not have. So deciding on what to give begins with understanding what is it that God has already given me in the midst of all the other responsibilities that I am given. God is one who is out without measure. He's the one who owns a, a cattle on a thousand hills, right? But you might only have one hill and you have to be responsible and a good steward of that. 
But here's where many a false teacher has crept into the church. And he broadcasts on FaceTube and Instabook to redefine what it is that we have to give, right? To go right at the heart of the matter, we are not to give away our rent money to God. We are not to take that which we need to eat and provide for our families and give it to God. Let's turn some pages. Turn with me to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, verse 45. It's important for us to understand that sometimes we may come to this passage thinking that it is a model for us to emulate, recognizing that it is actually Jesus providing a strict warning of what is not to be done. In Luke chapter 20, verse 45, we read this. I'm sorry. Luke 21. Did I say 20? Luke 21. In the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. How is it that these scribes devour widows' houses? I mean, are they made of candy canes and they're just going in there and just eating the candy and it's just kind of disintegrating? Well, we keep reading. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow who put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you this, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. How were they devouring the widow's houses? They had created a system of manipulation so that a widow felt like I have to give away the money for my house in order for God to be pleased with me. And if we want to know what God thinks about that entire system of manipulation and false compulsion, we keep reading. And while some were speaking at the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for the things that you see, the days will come where there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He said, this whole thing is getting leveled. You can see and understand the heart of Jesus Christ. So for us, it is essential to understand the proportionality by which we come to God to give. Secondly, our giving is to be sacrificial. In 2 Corinthians 8.3, back near the text that we were, we can see the heart of the Macedonians, which is remarkably challenging, isn't it? In verse 2 it says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance and joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed with a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, there's proportional, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us, earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Begging to be part of it. The foundation of Christians in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, verse 45, what were they doing? They were selling their possessions so that they can convert it to resources for those who were in Jerusalem, who had traveled from lands all over for Passover, had come and been converted to Christ and couldn't go home because they wanted to learn what it is to follow after Jesus. They didn't have a home, they didn't have a job, they didn't have any money with them. They didn't have a debit card. As we learned about earlier, all their money was back in a pot in their backyard. Who's going to take care of them? The Christian says, we will. We'll sell what we can so that you can be provided for. Sacrificial giving means that there is a degree of loss that you experience for the sake of your generosity. 
What is it that you are sacrificing so that others may be blessed? It may be large, it may be small. It may be consistent, it may be irregular. But is there a place by which you can look at your life and your budget and say, no to what I need and to what I want because I am going to give this to someone else? And thirdly, we see the last motivation to help guide our giving, and it is giving from a heart that it responds to what Christ has done for us. In chapter 8, verse 9, we read of the ultimate gift that has been given. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Before we consider percentages and relationships and amounts, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what has Christ done for you? What is it that Christ has done for you? The songs that we sing portray the beautiful wonder of God's grace of emptying himself so that we may be rich in him. What is our worshipful response to that? That is the question place with your spouse, with your own heart before the Lord to say, God, help me to be generous like you. These become our guiding principles. Proportional, sacrificial, and according to the measure of what Christ has done for you. What are the avoiding principles? Back in our text, not grudgingly or under compulsion. This presses us back and frees us from internal and external obstacles that impact and threaten cheerful giving. Grudgingly is to be with grief or out of duty, that there's an internal vacancy of joy, that your giving has become mechanistic, maybe even overly habitual and saddened. Are you this type of giver? Is giving just something that happens? Maybe it just happens electronically on a recurrence that you've almost forgotten about. This isn't a slightly electronic giving, but a question for you. Are you aware of what's coming in and out of your bank account? And is it a joyful experience to know, yep, that is continuing to happen? We are to be free of compulsion, external pressure, or coercion. So we must watch out and examine our motivations to please other men or to be concerned about what they may think of you. Sadly, this world is full of manipulation, manipulative demands for giving, and I hope that this text is something that protects us from that manipulation to understand what it is that God wants you. And this brings us back to the heart of giving. A giver who thoughtfully, proportionally, sacrificially, and in response to Christ's salvation, without duty or external manipulation, will be what? they will be a cheerful giver. If you are lacking joy and if you are lacking cheer in your giving, this is the means by which you can begin to get back there. Evaluate these principles and how you may change. And this type of giver is one who is loved by God. But what is this cheerfulness? The cheerful giver. It can be understood as a combination of two concepts, a joy and a readiness. About three and a half weeks ago, we had this, uh, this field day out there in the field, which a bu- bunch of kids from the, the co-op that we're a part of. And uh, at the early part of the morning, there were a couple big strong uh, boys who carried out several Home Depot, Depot buckets that were full of water balloons. And uh, they were for the water balloon toss, and there's lots of fun to enjoy in a controlled environment with a water balloon toss, right? But then we go through all the cycle, and at the end of that, there's a whole bunch of water balloons left over. 
And so I'm, I, you know, watching this whole scene. I'm the MC, and this is happening across the field. And I look at some of the teachers who are over there who find a group of four-year-olds and say, come on over. So all these four-year-olds come over, no idea what's going to be offered to them. And you can see as they circled up and the, the teacher's talking to them, they're like looking at each other. Like something's going to happen. You know there's like energy that's building in this little circle around these uh, Home Depot buckets. And then all of a sudden, you see these children just like a bunch of beehive that's just been hit with a stick, come running across the field, and all of these four- and five-year-olds have two water balloons, one in each hand, right? And as they're running, you can see the expression on their face, and as they go over toward the upperclassmen who they were instructed to give these water balloons for to, it was a picture of cheerfulness, (laughs) a joyful readiness to release that which had been given to them. Now, lest we think that giving should be just like a water balloon launch, turn with me to Exodus 25 for a biblical example of this same theme. In Exodus 25, we see God teaching and commanding the Israelites about what is needed to build a sanctuary by which he would dwell in. In Exodus 25, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold and silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, for the fragrance and incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, and you shall make it. And then you go on for several pages in your annual Bible reading plan about all the ways by which these things were constructed. And you're wondering, uh, what happened with that giving? Turn over to Exodus chapter 36. Exodus chapter 36, verse 2. And Moses called Basilel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill and everyone whose heart stirred up in him to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than is enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. And so Moses has to give a second command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman bring anything more for the contribution in the sanctuary. What what does that scene look like? A joyful, growing excitement and cheer to say, have it, have it, have it. This is the heart of what God desires. Brothers and sisters, are you a cheerful giver? Are you a cheerful giver? Is there a situation by which you could say someone coming to you and saying, no more. We've got enough. What is the giving that God gives us opportunity to give to? He gives us the opportunity to support our mission. He gives us the opportunity to not muzzle the ox, to help evangelism occur here. 
And as we learn from this passage, God gives the opportunity to accumulate savings for large-scale giving. Could you imagine being a Corinthian over the course of a year, setting a little bit aside every month, or every week, and every week, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and then the word comes, Paul's coming. Paul's coming. Oh, great. This is what I've got to give. I only had this little handful every week, but I've been diligent all year long, and here is my sack of grain. Take it to my brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. The building joyful expectation of a giving that saves in order to bless when God says, here's a need. Here's a need. So ask yourself, is there joy in regular giving? And are you working in ways, in secret, by which you are accumulating something that you would say, God, connect me. Connect me with something that I can do for the sake of others. God has something for this cheerful person. And it's not only just the joy. Back in our text, what does it say? What is the promise? There is a value. There is an economic commodity in God's economy that he provides to this cheerful giver. And what is it? His love. It is his love. May we not miss the value of what God promises to those who give away. His very love, his very pleasure that he gives to his people. This is a love that is grounded in obedience. So for any and all the commands that God gives to us, how do we express our love to him? By doing what he says. And God showers his praise upon those who are walking in his ways. What a gift to receive these things. You may be sitting here thinking to yourself, but what if I'm not a cheerful giver? I see the call, I understand it, but that's not me. I'm not giving at all. Or I have been giving, and it's habitual, it's mechanistic. It's actually drudgery. I lack the zeal for it. What am I to do about that? Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. The counsel that was given by Jesus to the rich young man is the same to you. Let go of the money and put both hands around Jesus and ask him to change your heart. But God also knows of our weak faith, and this passage is going to continue to open to help us understand how is it that we are to grow in our cheerfulness, in our zeal for giving. And it is primarily to understand what God is doing with our giving. Let us look at how we can trust in God's power for our giving in verse 8 and 9. And God is able to make all grace abound in you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Beloved, God is able. The word here for able is dunatos, which means actually powerful or mighty You might scratch in your Bible, God is mighty to make all grace abound. This word abound here is an an abundance. It's the same word to describe the basketfuls of bread that were left over after Jesus fed the 5,000. That is what he seeks to make within us, an abounding, overflowing amount of grace. If you're to walk through this verse, you're actually going to see that grace is not the only thing that he seeks to give us that the absolute terms of all and every are used five times. All grace, all sufficiency, all things, 
all times so that you may abound in every good work. Financial good works are a subset of the total and all-encompassing work that God has called us to do, but that he saved us to do, that he desires for us to walk in. There's a word here that says that the purpose of this, why does God equip us to such a degree? He says, so that you would have all efficiency in order that you would superabound in good works. That word sufficiency is probably better understood as the word contentment. And what of this contentment? The first thing we need to understand about contentment in our giving is that we are not necessarily called to be looking around the corner or into the future where we may have more money, more capacity to do some really good giving. And I've rationalized that on, my, on myself so many different times. I'm early in my career, can't give much, but man, I'd love to make a lot of money so that I could really start giving to the Lord at some point in time. Can I be content with the cheerful giving that is proportional and sacrificial to right where God has me right now? Because to think that all of a sudden we're going to become sacrificial and proportional givers when we have much is to undercut all of the wisdom that God gives us. What you do with a little is a prophetic picture of what you will do if you have more. Let us not find ourselves uncontent or discontent with that which God gives to us. The promise, brothers and sisters, is clear, and we must believe it. God will give us all of what we need to be a cheerful giver, to remain a cheerful giver, and to grow as a cheerful giver giver. He gives spiritual and material resources to accomplish this task. The question for you and for me is, do we believe him for it? Do you believe that this is what God's going to do? And he knows that. Look at verse 9. He continues to encourage us. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. To add explanation and emphasis to the point that he just made, that God is mighty to give us all grace to accomplish these things, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, as he does so many times in this passage. He says, let me explain what I mean from what God has already said. As we look at verse 9, we have an interpretive question to answer. The he, does it refer to God, or does the he refer to the giver? And to answer that, we should look in context. So turn with me to Psalm 112. We read this earlier today. When Paul cites this promise, as it is written, he scattered abroad and he gave to the poor his righteousness endures forever. What is he seeking to communicate to us? He's speaking to give us encouragement of the doctrine of concurrence. The doctrine of concurrence means that as God is working, so are we. And as we are working, so is God. We've heard about the doctrine of concurrence from Daniel chapter 1. Nebuchadnezzar was the one who besieged Jerusalem, but it was the Lord who gave Jehoiakim over to him. You've heard the story from, of David in 1 Samuel 17. David is the one who killed the lion and the bear, but then a few verses later it says what? It was God who delivered David from the lion and the bear. Well, what about our giving? Look at Psalm 112, verse 9, which is what Paul lifts into 1 Corinthians. He says, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. All of these pronouns are speaking of, in verse 1, the man who fears the Lord. 
But what we have to understand is that Psalm 112 is not a psalm of isolation. It is actually a psalm that is paired with Psalm 111. Psalm 111 tells of the great works of God. Look at verse 1. I will praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord. He has caused, verse 4, his wondrous works to be remembered. Verse 5. He provides food for those who fear him. He has shown his people the power of his works. And then we see this then come into chapter, or in, into 112. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And then we see what happens with his offspring, his wealth, and later on, what he distributes freely and his righteousness that endures forever. Who's at work here? God is at work. Who's at work here? The generous man is at work. The generous man is being carried along by the God who causes things to last forever. So as we learned from our brother Mac earlier, that the treasures that we store up in heaven, that same promise is right here. That the actions of giving and generosity that we practice now are that which God honors and that which God carries along. We are not alone in our giving. We are with the God of this universe who is going to supply us and carry us along. And so if you're here today falling short of the standard of cheerful giving, then we need to turn back to God, the God who abundantly and powerfully provides contentment, the God who will protect us from the fear of losing our resources because he will continue to powerfully give us all that we need to accomplish the ends that he calls us to. Thirdly, let's shift from the power of God in our giving to the promise of God to grow our giving. Look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. It's worth standing back in awe, isn't it, to see God at work. The generosity of God here is not a one-for-one transformation. It's compounding, it's multiplying, and it's transformative. Do you see that? That's the kind of giver that God is. These descriptions of God did not originate with Paul, but rather this concept of the seed and the bread comes from Isaiah, and the harvest of righteousness comes from Hosea. The reason that is significant is that we are to be encouraged that this God who calls us to cheerful giving, that he will supply and multiply, is the God who was, the God who is, and the God who is to come. There is an immutable and unchangeable nature of God that can grow your faith that he will show up to give you what you need in order to be generous on his behalf. This is part of his nature and it is part of his his joy. Let's look at what God does with the first act of giving. He does two things here at once. Do you see it? In the original context from Isaiah 55, this is what it says, the rain and the snow come down from heaven and they do not return there, but they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout Here's our text, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I purpose. In the first cycle, God simultaneously provides seed for another planting and food for the planter. Isn't that marvelous? Out of the same plant, God does work that is multiplicative. 
Rain comes down, it causes the plant to grow, and it produces two things at once. Seeds that you can put right back down into the ground and seeds or grain that you can now eat. This is our God. It was uh, last past Friday afternoon, I was finishing uh, work and was actually looking at some of these texts when I uh, heard from the side window one of my children screaming from the side yard. And after my initial reflexive response, which was, what is going on out there? As you're a parent, you probably know what I'm talking about. I began to listen to the content, and it was not angered yelling, it was not painful, it was actually cheerful glee. The mulberry tree that is in our side yard is in full bloom, and it's ready now to eat. And the screaming was somewhat muffled because there were 10 of these berries in the child's mouth as he was screaming out to his siblings and his mom, you've got to come over here, there's berries everywhere. Now here's the thing, he didn't plant the tree. We didn't plant it. It was there before we got there. He didn't water the tree. He didn't bring anything into bloom. But what was he doing? The fruit was there for his eating and enjoyment. And he immediately was calling others over, you've got to come get some of this anywhere. It's manna from heaven, right? We didn't prepare prepare this at all. I looked at it. I was literally in this part of of my preparation. I was like, I got to go out there and talk to him. So I go down there. Purple all over his face, right? I mean, it's just running down. He's grabbing more. It's like, this is great. This is great. I said, son, what else do you think you can do with these? You enjoyed them. You gave them to your friends, to your mom. What else do you think you could do with these? Ah, we could sell them. (laughs) Wait for Sunday, my son. (laughs) And then I coached him along a little bit, and I said, what would happen if you took one of those berries and you put it in the ground? He's like, oh, we could grow another tree for somebody else. I was like, you got it, buddy. You got it. Here's the application, family, for us. When that little boy woke up on Friday, he had no idea what God was going to give him. But God did. And we, at times, cannot see the financial supply that God has planned for us to sustain us and to grow us in our giving. Isn't that true? God is saying to us, this is what I'm like. This is what I do. I give and I do so in a way that is bigger than you could imagine. I can do two things at once. I can do five things at once. Trust me for it and pray that you would have the same heart that I do, right? This is the full and abundant life. But guys, brothers and sisters, this passage is not done. Watch what, watch what we learn about God next. In verse 10 again, he will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase your harvest of righteousness. The God who simultaneously gives seed for sowing and bread to the giver multiplies that seed. And then when you put it in the ground, it's out of sight, it's out of mind. That's what giving is, right? You let it go. What happens? It's transformed. It's transformed. Do you see what the text does? It doesn't say it comes back to you as a harvest of grain. It comes back to you as a harvest of fruit. It actually gets converted into all manners of righteousness. God brings back to you not just some more financial gain, but all manners of righteousness. In verses 12 to 14, we're going to unpack what some of those are. But I think it's so essential for us to understand that the God who gives seed and gives us supply multiplies our seed 
and then converts it into all manners of blessing and righteousness for us, for him, and for those whom we care about. Sometimes when we hear these things, we may still have doubts and suspicions that linger. We may think back to times where this principle seemingly has failed us. We were generous, we were faithful, we were joyful, but then God didn't supply us with what we needed to be generous with more increasing percentages and values. We fell on hard times. Inflation hit, persecution came, famine impacted our income, we lost our job. What are we supposed to do now? Has God failed us? My supply line has been cut off. It's been diminished. See, I can't believe in the God who's going to supply all my needs. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. The broader context of this collection from the Corinthians should nail our weak and doubting hearts to the cross. Beloved, who is it that Paul planned to give this gift to? He commanded the churches in Galatia and Corinth and all the surrounding areas to store up this weekly savings in order to take it to Jerusalem. The saints in Jerusalem had hit by, been hit by significant persecution, and these were nearly all Jewish believers whom now predominantly Gentile Christians were going to supply. But besides being the saints in Jerusalem, who were these Christians? Look at chapter 2, verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Oh, the glory. The Christians who were in need were the first and foundational Christians of generosity of the entire global church. They had sold their property to care for new spiritual family members. And now, God is going to be taking care of them through the generosity of new family members, ones that they had never even met. And what do you think it is that they were saying when that gift comes in? Sweet money that I can keep for myself. No. They were givers. They were going to look around amongst each other to figure out who has need. Do you think that their cheerful opportunity to give would be stripped away because their circumstances were bleak? Not a chance. To see this principle reaffirmed, we can only look back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and see what it is that God teaches us about the church in Macedonia. They gave according to their need, and then they went beyond their need. They were in the midst of a test of affliction, is what Paul describes They were impoverished. Why? Because God in his sovereignty had brought something to their geography that led to their poverty. And it is in that mist that they said, we still desire, we are begging you, let us give something to those Christians. How are we supposed to understand this? Brothers and sisters, there may be seasons of abundance for you, and then they may transition to seasons of drought. And you may go from primarily being a giver to others in large and growing percentages and values to becoming the recipient who may have to give less overall. But will your posture to give 
ever be threatened or changed. Never. Never. We see it here that God continues and promises to care for his people and to give them the opportunity to cheerfully give even if the exact numbers and values alter throughout the courses of your life. When there's seasons of abundance, we give more and more and more. When there's a test of affliction, we don't say, I can't give and I can't give cheerfully. Work with someone else and figure out what is that number? What can I continue to cheerfully do for the sake of my brothers and sisters, for the sake of Christ? I understand full well that this sermon is being preached in the setting of $5 gas and inflation beyond anything that we have seen in decades. But I also trust in our God. And I know He is going to move amongst us because He says so. God will always give you the ability and the capacity to cheerfully give and to grow in your giving. And for some of us, This season right now, amidst our culture, may be the time by which you give more because of what God is doing in shaking your heart. Praise God for it. And for some of you, things have gotten tightened up and you may for the first time need to say, I need some help. I was always the giver. I was always the giver. And now I need some help. Do you think that the church is gonna say, why? What's wrong with you? Look at the story of the generous saints in Jerusalem who are now being ministered to by Gentiles in Corinth. What a God. What a God. We'll close briefly as we turn our attention in verse 11 to 15 to the outcomes of our giving in God's economy. Look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgivings to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also in overflowing many thanksgivings to God. First, in verse 11, we see a summary statement of both God's work in us and then the effect of God's work through us. You will be enriched in every way with all liberality. Paul's just restating and summarizing what he's already said for the sake of emphasis and to remind our weak hearts and souls that he has us covered You will be made wealthy in righteousness and to some degree finances so that you can be more generous than you are. It is important to state here that the false teaching of prosperity theology, what that lies when it says sow a seed and gain an abundance, is motivated by self-centered gains. It reduces God's return to merely financial and material objects and fails to grasp the end goals, to bless others in such a way as to produce what? thanksgivings to God. Your car, the size of your house, and your clothes is not the end goal. It is worship. It is worship. Beloved, has God created you to be a bucket or a conduit? One that you may fill up for your own sake and for your own glory and for your own contentment of the things that you have? Or are you to be a pipe and a channel by which God may channel his very grace? If you were to look at 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you will see the word grace substituted for gift numerous times. 
because we are meant to understand that a dollar is not just a dollar in God's economy. It is literally the very grace of God that he has given to you to give to others. Some who you may know and some who you will never meet, but you are the conduit of grace. We are a conduit of grace in evangelism. We are a conduit of of grace in prayer. We are a conduit of grace through the good works that we do. And we are a conduit of grace with our giving. Do you believe God for this? Does this excite you? Do you understand that this is the abundant life by which you have been saved to? This is why we live. This is why we are still here. Because God desires for his glory to be known and for us to be part of it. Paul continues to exalt our thinking in verse 12. He transitions and he says, for the ministry of this service. This is a priestly term by which we get the word liturgy. The entire process of what we're seeing here in gathering this money and carrying along to the saints of Jerusalem is meant to be understood as an exercise of worship. We worship here today with beautiful singing in our gathered service. And as we give not just in the writing of the check, not just when we drop it in the box, but taking those funds and seeing them carried out all the way to the place of need. The whole thing is to be understood as worship to God. In verse 13, we learn of more reasons for our readiness to give. There is an adorning of the gospel and a unity of the Bible, and I'd love to land the plane with this very important reality for us to understand how significant this gift is for the proclamation of the gospel because of the nature of the two groups of people. The gospel of Jesus Christ we know is beautiful and it is properly adorned with good works. And what we are seeing in this gift is a primarily Jewish church being abundantly blessed by a predominantly Gentile church. And for thousands of years before the church began, what did we know of the Jews and the Gentiles? They were separated by land boundary, by dietary custom, by war, and the gods whom they worshipped. But at the time of Christ, he says, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to break down the walls of hostility, and I'm going to make one new man. And so this gift, quite literally, is a signification of what has been done. That Gentiles are caring for their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ who have been declared family members. And now they are showing that that is true. We are proving, we are validating the goodness and the wonder of what God does with the gospel. And what he has united in men is a picture of what we have ultimately been united to God. And what is the final outcome of the reaction of these recipients? We see all the way down in verse 14. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace that is upon you, there is a desire for fellowship and union between the givers and the recipients. When we sow with blessing, we reap with blessing. Giving is far more than about money. It's about grace. It's ministry. It's worship. It produces worship. It creates union between us and God, the ultimate giver, and between us and the receivers of the grace that we pass along. And so this 
brothers and sisters, is the heart of giving. Cheerfully, proportionally, sacrificially responding to Christ's sacrifice, working concurrently with God who multiplies, transforms, and increases the harvest in his economy to bring spiritual and material blessing to the giver and the receiver to the ends of more generosity, more praise, and more worship. And to these ends, Paul can only say in verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Jesus Christ is Lord Jesus Christ, the giver. Jesus Christ, the redeemer. Jesus Christ, the gift. Through his poverty, we have become rich. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, what is it that we can say in response to this except praise be to you? God, I pray that you would draw us toward yourself that we would have a yearning desire to be like you in your open-handed, ready, and cheerful generosity, that we would seek you for counsel, that we would desire and ask you to overwhelm our hearts with gratitude for what it is that you have done in salvation for us, that we would open our hearts wide to be vessels of mercy and grace, God, that we would reorder our budgets, not based on our housing, but based on our giving, not based on our entertainment, but based on what it is that we can do to build up your kingdom. Father, for those of us who give with a bitter heart, for those of us who did not give at all, Father, I pray that you would receive our repentance, that we would confess, that we would be restored, and that you would give us grace that we may walk in obedience and to receive the love that you have for cheerful givers. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Make us more into the likeness of Son. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You have been listening to Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.